Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. Can insights from the COVID-19 crisis be applied to how we approach climate change? Are real estate owners responsible for the health of their tenants? In this episode, I sit down with Rafer Wallace, the founder of Giga, a company which combines the development of building standards with cloud technology to increase the accessibility and impact of healthy buildings globally to answer these questions and more. Enjoy the conversation. So Rafer, thank you so much for, for joining. Um, I really appreciate it. Where, where are you right now? I'm currently in Shanghai, so I don't quite have the sexy background you've got. <laughs> yeah, it's a little different. Uh, well, thank you so much for, for joining. And can you just give a little background on yourself before we jump in? Sure, with pleasure. I mean, first, thanks for having me. Um, I'm, um, I'm originally Canadian. I am still a Canadian. Uh, I'm originally an architect and still an architect. Um, have been living in China for 18, 19 years. Uh, really, long story short, just being the busiest place on earth when I graduated and wanting to get my hands, uh, hands dirty. Um, and thrown into the mix here, uh, working on healthy health and sustainability in real estate. Um, ever since I got here, it's uh, the environment I grew up in, uh, realizing just the scale of the issues uh, especially out in Asia and not just that, but the scale and the ability to do something about it. And so, uh, I am, I no longer practice despite still uh, thinking of myself as an architect, but I'm now focused on building standards. Uh, we developed the world's first building standard called reset, um, that's focused on, uh, sensor data. So we evaluate the health of buildings as collected by sensors in real time. Um, and we run the world's largest hub of data on building materials called Origin, where we focus on health and sustainability data also compiled uh, and updated uh, in real time, universal structure disseminated out to, uh, out to the world. Um, so that has been a byproduct of just trying to solve issues at scale here, but now luckily enough to have seen that go global. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of a very unique lens to look at some of the issues we've been thinking a lot about. And I'd love to get your perspective on, I guess, to start, when we think about public health, right, um, we don't usually think of there being responsibility um, at the asset level, at the real estate level. It's kind of, I think, intuitively thought of as that is a government issue. Um, it's not a private sector issue necessarily. But as buildings and homes are the places where we spend so much time and there are these endpoints, these kind of nodes of an open society, um, how do you think this crisis changes how real estate owners need to think about their responsibility for public health? Ooh, big question. Easy one to start off with. <laughs> um, I think, honestly, it changes everything. Uh, you know, I think people like us have been sort of beating the drum that a lot of real estate owners and operators and the people within them, quite frankly, have been asleep at the wheel for a very long time. And now in, in sort of proverbial 
Warren Buffett times the tides rolling out, everyone's standing there naked and nobody's fit. So it's looking, it's looking pretty ugly. Um, so everyone's getting a first look at, in the mirror uh, at themselves. But the, the question of responsibility is, is, a, is a fascinating one where, um, and allow me to, I don't know, give two different perspectives on this, seeing as we have, the, we have the luxury of sitting in both China and North America where we have offices. And I've been, and I was uh, in China during the peak of uh, COVID. Then I was in North America uh, as well, reliving the same thing the second time over. So I, I, I got to see it emerge in both places, speaking to real estate in both places. And the reaction has been really fundamentally different and, and a slight tangent here. I get asked a lot, what can we learn from China? And from, from that larger philosophical, uh, uh, philosophical uh, angle, the answer is not much. Uh, and the U.S. is going to have to work a lot harder than, than people uh, imagine based on this, your question of responsibility. Sorry, it's a bit of a long answer, but I, you know, the, the Chinese government has been so effective in coming in so strong at dealing with the issue that a lot of the Chinese real estates is actually not doing necessarily as much as they, they, they should be doing. The, uh, the, that's, the, the, that's the owners you're talking about specifically. The owners, exactly. So doing, doing the minimum. Uh, that's uh, that's required because the the, the confidence level um, in what uh, in how the government has has dealt with this and to the to credit amazingly so um, is so high. Whereas in the U.S., where currently there is clearly a lack of leadership uh, and uh, everyone's on their own, the the real estate owners are going to have to work a lot harder to build trust and convince people it's safe to come back in. Whereas in China, it's very much government dictating, okay, from tomorrow, it's safe to go back into buildings. This is how you do it. Off you go. Uh, and responsibility very much in many ways taken off of the real estate owners. Uh, and, and whereas in, in North America, complete opposite. So, you know, the building owners in North America especially need to start seeing themselves as public health officials because clearly no one else is. And if um, you want to bring people back into buildings, then the number one concern is going to be communication and building trust right. around what you know about health and how you're dealing with that in, in the building. So long answer to the question, I'm sorry, but the, uh, the, the notion of responsibility for building owners, uh, how, how they need to look at their position with, uh, within building, uh, within uh, public health is fundamentally changing and the building owners who are not realizing this are, are going to be uh, extinct, I believe, after, uh, after this particular session. I think that's totally true. And you know, one of the things we were talking about um, before the call um, was this, this issue of like overlapping jurisdictions, right? And you made the comment that there's not a lot to learn from China because the, the response of government was so far reaching and had such a kind of command and control nature to it. And in a more open society like North America and the US, we almost have to rely on these kind of tiered layers of jurisdiction, right? There's a federal response, there's a state response, there's a city response, and then below that you actually have these micro responses, a response at maybe the business park level, at the individual building level, at the individual home level, and then the individual level. And it's, it, it feels like somewhere in that chain, the notion of responsibility 
has been so far diluted that people don't think of how they need to embrace it. Um, you know, if I think about this house that I'm in, I'm the mayor of this house, right? I get to make the decisions about who comes, who goes, and the safety of its occupants. And it, it feels like we need um, real estate owners to embrace a almost like micro-mayoral type responsibility for the occupiers they're building. And that requires communication. And that's something you've talked a lot about. Like, how do you build the right communication between the landlord, the owner of an asset, and the occupants of that asset? Yeah. Um, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, sort of crisis response 101, what is the single most important thing in a crisis? Communication. You need to tell people what's going on a lot, um, need to reassure, give directions, so on. I think this pandemic has showed just how unprepared uh, people have been for communication, especially within those jurisdictions and you know, within their own proverbial house. How do you tell the occupants of that house what to do or what's going on rather, what measures are being taken? So communication, absolutely number one. But then number two is what, what the heck am I communicating? Uh, that's a lot of the issue too. Um, a lot of nonsense and uh, irrelevant things being communicated as well. Um, and this is where we've focused the crux of our attention on, on data, you know, good quality data that communicates the health uh, of, the, of the building in real time so that there is, there's something to communicate to, uh, to, the, to the tenants, um, not just on actions you're going to take in the crisis, but actions you've already taken. Sorry. And I just actually did to help people understand what, what kind of data, like can you just walk people through specifically, what would that data look like that a building owner might collect, uh, draw conclusions from, and then pass along? Like, can you kind of make that a little more concrete? Yeah. Um, so we collect hordes of data on uh, outdoor pollutants and outdoor environmental uh, conditions. And then uh, mechanical, what happens in the mechanical system of the building? And then how that translates to what happens in, in the space. So we're looking at particulate matter, uh, PM 2.5. Um, what's fascinating right now, just a little side note, we're launching a new standard in a couple of weeks, which focuses in um, broader spectrum particulate monitoring. So from 0 0.3 to 25. So these are particles that go straight to the brain uh, and also irritants. So giving occupants a much greater view on what's happening within uh within buildings um then there's chemical off-gassing from materials uh and uh, co2 of course carbon dioxide but the two most boring ones that have been the most fascinating ones for me have been temperature and humidity so we've been talking about the impact of temperature and humidity on the rate of survival of viruses and how much they transmit uh, since the 1960s this is not a new topic and um, I was recently correlating and wrote an article on it that the cities around the world that have had the largest outbreak are all precisely in the same temperature and humidity zone. So if you, if you look at all those cities, and New York was entirely predictable. It was going to move into that temperature and humidity zone within uh, a certain weeks in um, end of March and April. And it did exactly that. And now it's slowly moving uh, out of it. So you take that data and you move it indoors and you can tell a lot about what the risk of virus transmission is and how you're mitigating it, uh, both from a temperature humidity point of view, 
but also from a particulate uh, matter point of view, because the particulates that come into our lungs, they reduce our immune system and uh, allow us to make us sick. And those are direct correlations. You know, if you go online, you can ping me afterwards. I'll bore you with the details. But just showing the direct relation between particle matter, dust, essentially, fine dust, and how it compromises the immune system and how, how we get sick uh, as a byproduct. Again, this is not new. It's been around since uh, for, for two decades at least. And, and just in that example, how much agency would the owner of a building have? So say you were in that sweet spot, right? That zone which maximizes the kind of growth rate of a particular contagion. Um, could you modify that? Meaning if, I don't know the stats about what percentage of people, and we pr probably no one knows this at this point, what percentage of people contracted COVID-19 inside an asset, meaning inside a temperature controlled or humidity controlled environment. Are there things that if you had known that, what the optimal and suboptimal settings for the virus growth, growth rate would be, could the building owner change that and therefore reduce the spread of the disease? Yeah, that's, that's, that's one of my most uh, fascinating or one of the areas I'm most interested in is how to, how to take a building and turn it into a safe haven. How do you turn it into a health haven? Um, and it's entirely doable. Uh, and it's the way buildings should be run. Um, but it's not, it's not rocket science, but it's not, um, it requires this, this breaking of barriers. It requires tenant and landlord to be together, uh, to be working together. And when you talk about sort of jurisdiction and who's the mayor of what, and this really comes to light here, because in many cases, the tenant is, hey, landlord, what can you do for me? Uh, and without realizing that, oh, hang on, you've got your own set of responsibilities here. Uh, and what we've spent a lot of time um, within the standard doing is carving out those responsibilities. What's being measured where? Who controls what? So that we can help people work better together, right? And I'll give a very concrete example of this. As people see the research and the data that we've got there for humidity and the impact on viruses, um, which is entirely controllable by the building, the tenants come in and say, hey, I need to lean on my landlord to give me uh, air with higher humidity if I'm in a dry zone. Uh, and we say, no, 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 that is the last thing you want to do. You, you, no Legionnaire's uh, disease in the ducts, please. Like, we want the air coming out of the central system to be dry. That is not the landlord's responsibility. That is you as the tenant's responsibility. And so all of this is highly controllable. Buildings should be safe havens. It's just a question of knowing who does what and being right. able to have those both parties have jurisdiction over their their own responsibilities. Yeah, and that, and that communication, it sounds like, between the tenants and the landlords around who is responsible for what. And then that tenant, yeah, it's key. Communication's key. And, you know, something that, that interests me is when you think about these um, jurisdictional issues, right, like who controls what, um, what's interesting is to think about the time horizon. So, you know, in, in my mind, I think about a fire, right? And a fire drill. Um, I've been in many buildings where there are protocols for if the fire alarm goes off, everyone clears out of the building under a certain time frame, and you congregate in different areas. And there's something about the immediacy, the 
the imminent threat of a fire and how fast that can have you know human health and and death consequences. And then you kind of slow that time frame down and think about an epidemic where it happens over a slower time frame. But in in many ways, the the inevitability of a global epidemic was seen by people for decades, certainly decades, years, yeah. well before COVID-19. And in many ways, this could be a dress rehearsal, right? This could be a fire drill for something far more virulent, far more deadly that, that comes along. And then taking that out even further in kind of like the collective action sphere is, is th these problems of collective action that have huge um, long-term time horizons. And like, I think about the climate crisis as being one of those things, right? So if you're in Miami and <laughs> carbon emissions stay where they are, you will be underwater at some point. Right. It won't happen tomorrow, won't happen next week, but it will happen over decades. And how do you think we can change the, the duration mindset around some of these collective action problems to make owners and tenants think in a more long-term fashion? And is, is there, kind of as a sub-question to that, I know I'm asking a long one, but as a sub-question <laughs> to that, is, is there anything about this experience that you think might help, um, right? There, is, is there anything about the learnings and the insights that come from how people have reacted, the success and failures of the COVID-19 response that might help us better think about how to react to the climate change and who's responsible? Brendan, you're asking all the easy questions. I know. You realize, know. It's, still, you realize it's still morning for me. Yeah. Here. I just <laughs> I'm asking, I'm basically asking dissertation questions, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, we don't want to underplay the impact of, of SARS-CoV-2. <clears throat> um, but we, had to, we, we need to look at the silver linings at the same time. And uh, of course, you know, this is really just climate change and training. Uh, and many of us who have been in the field for uh, a long time realize that we actually haven't seen anything yet. Like what we're seeing currently as a crisis is, is baby uh, steps. It's, uh, it's, it's small, um, mainly because it's affecting a very small vertical and that's us humans, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a few cats, a few bats, uh, things like this. But um, there's a lot that we can do to control, such as washing hands and social distancing and hanging out in your house for a while, right? So in terms of a crisis, it's honestly a fairly mild one. There's, it's, a, it's an infrastructure crisis more than anything. But the silver lining around it is just how much of a wake-up call it is to how completely unprepared we are for crisis management. Uh, and as mentioned, starting to realize um, starting to realize what this is going to look like. Uh, because you, we often talk about the new normal, but this is actually, the new normal has been around for a long time. This is the old normal. We're just waking up to it. Uh, and uh, we, it, it, it's really harsh to say, but we needed something like this. Uh, and as an engineer, I studied structural engineering and, and architecture. Unfortunately, you only make advances in the industry when there's a crisis. Uh, when there's an earthquake and people die, structural engineering advances. <clears throat> uh, and so, you know, we, we, it's unfortunate, but it's how humans work. We, we react when there's a crisis. This, this, uh, this 
this crisis, I think a lot of people are realizing is really just helping open up that vision to your earlier point. Say, all right, um, what happens next? Because I, I've actually, I'm, I've been in a ton of conferences where people talk about hedging against disruptive threats in real estate, right? Can you say that it's been again? a bit of a Can you say hedging that? against hedging against disruptive threats. Yeah. So I conference after conference where you hear this word coming out of uh, building owners saying, yes, uh, we want to look into uh, ESG metrics, uh, environmental social governance metrics, and to, to hedge against disruptive threats. And you sit down and go, the heck does that mean to you? And the answer is, I don't really know yet, but it has something to do with climate change about, you know, being in Miami and underwater at some point in time. But it's, I, have, I don't know what it means. Um, now that we have a uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic, everybody gets a sense of what a disruptive threat is to business, to life, to, to just emotionals, uh, everything that's going on. Um, so again, long answer, maybe to, <laughs> to a long question, but, uh, we can't break out of our, it's really hard to break out of our current context unless we have something that stretches our limits. Right. Yeah. And this is, this is in a way as devastating as it is, it's so incredibly needed for us as a society to push the limits of what we can imagine to start thinking in that longer term that you're describing. So thinking, okay, um, what we're seeing globally, we're going to see this three to four times worse situationally, right? And mm -hmm. if I'm going to be in that situation, how do I react? What do I need to start uh, thinking about? Because as we said at the beginning, the real estate industry generally has been very much asleep at the wheel. And it's going to be interesting who takes what type of actions uh, around this. And it will be mini jurisdictions. It will be, uh, you know, buildings in many ways are mini kingdoms. Um, and sorry, in my little rant here, in my little monologue, uh, I was actually recently in India and uh, I, we've been doing an increasing number of work here uh, there. And it finally hit me how India works because coming from China where everything's central and being Canadian, uh, then going to India and seeing the scale of the issue and you realize, oh my God, how is India going to get itself out of all these issues? Uh, and you go there and you realize that it's actually, it works in these mini quote unquote kingdoms. You have these enormous campuses and these enormous, which have, of course, you know, they're very segregated, but um, you see some incredible initiatives happening within these, these mini kingdoms. And it's by far not a perfect model because it is so segregated, but you do see these building owners taking massive responsibility for uh, the health and well-being of their occupants, the water quality, the air quality, uh, so on and so forth. So this idea of stronger jurisdiction within buildings, um, I was surprised to see how present and strong it was uh, in, in India. Um, yeah by nature of force, you know, in, in isolation, not everywhere, uh, of course, but. And, and your point is that that's in, that's in part because of the scale, right? The, the, the footprints of some of these um, office developments are like cities unto themselves. And so Correct. in many ways, it pushes the, the private sector owner of a real estate asset to 
self-conceptualize as a mayor, right? They, they are actually responsible. They're the mayor of, of a mini city. Um, yeah, exactly. exactly. And, and, you know, what would you, what would you say just like prescriptively, if you could wave your magic wand um, and you could influence the CEOs of the world's 200 largest real estate companies and you could kind of have them do something, <laughs> what would it be? Like, what would be the thing you would have them do right now? Um, wow. Another easy question. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm biased here, obviously. Um, but I've always been a big proponent of you. You can't fix what you can't measure, right? Or you can't manage uh, what you can't measure. And, um, without data, it's just another person's opinion. Uh, and to cut through the talk, um, the, uh, a lot of the building owners just be, need to become a lot smarter uh, on, on the health of their buildings. And I, I don't just mean sort of the, the sort of viruses and uh, making, making buildings bioresilient, but also uh, the energy consumption of, of those buildings. Yeah. Um, so, you know, very close to us right now, <clears throat> um, we're obviously experts in, in air quality, writing standards for that for over a decade, deploying around the world all measured in real time. So it gives us a lot of like pulse on buildings. Uh, but now the, the, the next gen of that and what we're actively working on with, uh, with several building, building owners, um, especially now uh, starting in the US, is how do you do that at the lowest possible energy footprint and the lowest carbon footprint, right? Because uh, those, those, those are the big challenges for real estate coming up is how do I create, you know, by definition, Currently, a healthier building uh, with all the implications it means for air means a building that consumes more energy has a larger carbon footprint. So how do we how do we how do we break that? How do we get to a super healthy building that is also uh, good for the environment that has uh, a low carbon footprint, low energy? And if I had to wave my magic wand there, um, it would be having the building owners just focus on uh, really a series of five key elements, um, their air, the energy, the materials that go into buildings because that affects directly air quality and energy consumed. So that's the, that's the critical trifecta, air, energy, uh, materials. Um, and the, <laughs> as it happens, the areas I've spent the past 20 years on. Um, and then communication around that. Because uh, as mentioned uh, earlier, um, nobody can achieve this alone. It's impossible. So unless building owners start engaging uh, their tenants better um, via communication, no one's going to get anywhere. So if we want to get somewhere, uh, waving a magic wand, sort of four or five points for the building owners to focus on, it's like focus on the critical elements, uh, energy, air, materials, communication. Uh, in order to build trust, and uh, th th those are the key pieces. And you know, as, if I promise this will be my last uh, out there dissertation-like question, but then then um, we get into the easy ones. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you know, in just the last month, um, obviously Trump and uh, Congress has talked a lot about a major infrastructure plan for the United States, which I think everyone knows we have um, antiquated infrastructure 
uh, much of the Western world does, um, and a lot ha that has become functionally obsolescent. And I'm sure something you've thought a lot about is the interconnectedness of private sector real estate and urban infrastructure. Um, and so one of the things that I think is we're at high risk of doing is um, building infrastructure that itself becomes functionally obsolescent because we don't contemplate human behavioral changes, right? And, and I think in response to this crisis, there will be, it's almost like a lot of the behavioral changes that were happening um, at a certain pace, we're just, we just push fast forward on them, right? So whether that's migration to suburbs, whether that's redensification of cities, whether that's the demise of retail, whether that's changes in hospitality, um, how do you think the, the government in designing like 50, 100 year infrastructure projects, how do you think they can collaborate with private sector real estate owners in a way that not only builds the right kind of infrastructure, but builds infrastructure that keeps us safer as a society and has public health in mind? How do you, how do you think we could encourage that in the U.S.? Uh, I'm, I might be completely out to lunch and I'm, I'm going to take a risk here because it's a newer thought, but I was recently in a tech conference and somebody asked me, what is the most disruptive tech you see coming out in the next few years? Like what is the tech that's going to, that, that you think has the largest impact? And my, my answer was insurance. Mm. Uh, and everyone was ready for you're in the wrong conference. Uh, that's the one next door. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, we have, we're sitting on these mountains of data for operations of buildings, right? Healthy operations of, of buildings. And then these mountains of data for building materials, uh, chemicals uh, that are, uh, what are carcinogenic, you know, chemicals of concern that come into our buildings um, and wanting to avoid those. <clears throat> and recently we've been pulled into discussions by the two largest uh, insurance companies in the world, in China. Um, who are both working on real estate insurance uh, as well as infrastructure insurance for healthy buildings. And it's incredibly simple. You have building material data, you get insured. You don't have it, you don't get insured. You have a healthy building operational data, you get insured. You don't have it, you don't get insured, right? And as I was working with these guys, I realized, wow, this is a fascinatingly boring space that I've never looked into and I really need to look into because the, these insurance companies are the only ones who are looking at the short term and the long term. Right. They're looking at one to two year cycles on how it's going to affect your premium right now and are you going to be dead in 60 years, right? So they're the only ones who are looking at both the short term and the long term. And also and the other interesting thing is they're looking in aggregate, right? I mean, the insurance industry is based on these predictive actuarial models, meaning it, it might not impact yeah. one specific yes. asset, but when you're insuring assets globally or when you're insuring assets regionally, you have to think about the macro kind of almost glacial trends that will in fact impact it. Precisely, precisely. And this is what really sort of opened up my mind in working with these insurance companies because quite frankly, when I walked into these meetings for the first time, like, what am I doing here? Um, and I was thinking, thinking, I, I need to learn more here. I, I need to learn more about uh, how they're looking at the world because if we're building infrastructure for 60, 70 years um, in a government cycle that lasts two, four, eight years, 
yeah. there's a lot of lessons to learn here on how do you effectively combine the incredibly short term and the the long term. So you know, to me again, that was that was the sort of slightly facetious answer to within that conference saying, I, yeah, insurance is what's going to disrupt uh, disrupt the world. And I don't think I'm out to lunch. I mean, we look at all the, how insurance companies are reacting to climate change risks and whether you're on a coastal property and uh, so on and so forth. They're, they're looking at those short-term, long-term models. We need to apply those to how we build uh, infrastructure and how um, we work with the real estate owners uh, to do that. It's a really interesting point, the, the concept of insurance, because I think just at a macro level, the cost of insurance rises when there's more existential risk to anything, right? The, the, it's true of health insurance, it's true of asset insurance, it's true of every kind of insurance. And I think about the, the impact that capital markets have played uh, for real estate owners in just instigating change around ESG standards, right? Because it, in, in particular, um, environmental standards and decarbonization. And this has been happening for like the last decade where you know, large pension plans and large buyers of the public equity of REITs have said, we will preferentially deploy capital. You will have a lower cost of capital as an organization if you have a low or no carbon footprint asset base. And in that sense, you don't need to rely on altruism as much, right? You, you can actually rely on the behavior of just cost of capital to, to drive behaviors. And it's a really interesting point because insurance actually has the longest dated time horizon. It has time horizons that exceed the tenure of any CEO at a real estate company. It has time horizons that exceed the tenure of any politician at a federal or local level. And I had never thought about that, actually, that insurance is, is in some ways a, a time-adjusted collective action solution, right? Because- yeah we are going to pay for insurance and it's embedded in the cost of everything. So it's a really unique point of view. So clearly a little more to, to learn that there. And I want to riff a little bit off of, uh, you, know, you just talked about uh, capital and ESG metrics. Um, and I think that's a really important one to highlight too, because one of the largest influences that I see coming out is insurance is mentioned. The other one is obviously the one you touched upon. Um, but taking it full circle where you know, we're working with a property owner right now that um, has their financing, a green bond tied to their ESG metrics, right? Uh, and that's great. Uh, they launch it and then they realize, you know what? We're never going to get there um, because we have carbon metrics. We have energy metrics. We have waste metrics. We have IEQ, indoor environmental quality, uptime metrics that we need to meet. And we're just not going to get there because most of that is the tenant's fault. You know, the waste is 99% generated by the tenants. The indoor environmental quality problems are generated by the tenant. Uh, the energy is consumed largely by the tenant. Uh, and the carbon footprint as a result is the tenant. And so this building owner realizing, unless I figure out how to engage the tenants in, in working with me on meeting this, I'm never going to get there. And so we're finally seeing this trickle effect of the, the, financial, uh, the, the, the financial drivers now starting to have a positive impact on finally starting to break the silos between landlord and tenant 
starting to work together within these building, to use your term, jurisdictions, right? So a lot of focus on not just tenant engagement apps in terms of I want to sell you more stuff or please go to the restaurant in the basement and, right. and uh, here's the next yoga class and all that kind of stuff. But now on, all right, how do I, how do I help uh, you help me uh, within, within the building? And we've had, we've had some really uh, fascinating conversations there where we're speaking, data is always sensitive, and we're speaking to these, these, um, these tenants for which the data we manage, and we're asking, would you be willing to share your data with the building owner uh, in aggregate? And the response universally has been, well, what are you going to do with it? And it's like, well, it's to, for, it's to compile these ESG metrics. And the response universally has been, you know what? I would be interested in sharing the data as long as I get data back because mm -hmm. I need those ESG metrics too, right? So we're starting to see these really interesting two-way dialogues uh, emerge between the landlord and the tenant um, based on what is essentially ESG driven by, uh, uh, driven by financing. <laughs> and, and do you think there can be mechanisms whereby the landlord in, in leasing space can provide inducements around waste, for example, at the tenant level, right? So um, today, I mean, most leases are, are pretty standard in some respect. You're just leasing to occupy space. And what you do in that space is to a great extent independent of the landlord. They might bill you for electricity or they might bill you for certain things, but um, it'd be interesting to, to see if you could have a more complex, sophisticated lease that actually embedded the, act, the, the cost of usage, meaning a more uh, environmentally intensive use corresponds to a higher lease rate. Um, and it, it's almost like the, the missing link in that is exactly what you're talking about, um, open data sharing, right? Um, because the least waste producing tenants would willingly provide that data to landlords. And if the landlords in turn got a benefit on the capital market side or on the insurance side by aggregating and sending that data to those providers, you could create this almost like an implicit carbon tax at the tenant level embedded in the lease, um, yeah. which would be really fascinating. Is that something you've thought about? It's something we're working on. Oh, wow. Okay. It's, uh, and we were actually, um, in some cases, some of the Asian developers are further ahead. Uh, and um, I was in New York right before the pandemic sort of exploded. Um, strategically there, when, when it was still cold enough. <laughs> when was that? Um, uh, that was in the end of February, um, okay. uh, early March. I, I say that uh, with a grain of salt, obviously. But um, I was uh, just testing the hypothesis with uh, North American developers where um, it's, it's not just the operational metrics, but it's also uh, the building material metrics. So this mm -hmm. is another fascinating example where, uh, you know, the, the tenants will choose building materials that have, uh, that are end products that consume a lot of energy and are embedded with uh, uh, chemicals that will then uh, contaminate the space next door. So it's not the building owner's fault when, that thing when things like that happen, but it becomes the building owner's problem. And we were showing a case study of work we're doing in Asia where the building owner is realizing this and saying, I need to provide uh, an infrastructure of data 
for my building tenants to help them choose uh, healthier, more efficient materials. And I will collect that data in order to keep making it richer to give it back to the tenants. So it becomes a bonus of moving into that building owner space because they have all this expertise that goes with it. But, you know, this is where we cross the boundaries between just creating tools and quote unquote writing mini legislation, which is in the form of a lease uh, or a, uh, a standard, right? So in doing things like this, we need to be looking at the whole piece. So we're in there helping rewrite a clause within the contract, the lease agreement, uh, expanding the, the tenant requirements that need to be submitted, and then providing the tools to empower this. So you're, you're you starting this, this call off sort of on this idea of jurisdiction, I think was definitely the, the right foot because we can't just be looking at tools. You have to be looking at the type of mechanisms and understanding the drivers to say, okay, to make this work, to really impact change, I need to be looking at that lease agreement. It's not something yep. I'd usually do, but then now I need to be looking at the, the fit out guides. Uh, and you need to touch upon all those quote unquote infrastructure elements um, to, to create the type of uh, result that you were just describing. Yeah. And then you can start creating incentives uh, and, and bonuses on, on actual data, on actual results, using an actual process. It, it's interesting to think about uh, how far that kind of, um, that responsibility can get pushed down, right? That kind of like micro mayoral responsibility, that, that, that jurisdictional responsibility we were talking about at the beginning, because, I mean, you can envision that obviously at the office park level, like you were talking about in India, at an individual asset level, um, at a single tenant level. And then even like, I live in a, a community here and you think about what the HOA does. An HOA basically collects a check from me periodically. Right. But I am guessing that the intensivity of my use versus other homeowners might vary considerably and I'm not correspondingly taxed uh, or the cost of my carrying this home is not correspondingly taxed. And it's, it is interesting to, to think that the key to all of that is data, right? Is, is data that we need to collect. Um, and how do you provide those incentives around data? Um, yeah. Anyway, this is, it's just, it's fascinating to, it's fascinating to reflect on, I think a lot of people think about smart buildings, right? This, this kind of catchphrase of smart buildings has been thrown around without people oftentimes thinking about what it means and the implications therefrom. But the data is just the, it's like the, the bedrock around which you can build an incentive and economic system to drive the behaviors you want. And yeah. until we have that data infrastructure, we're really just shooting blind. Yep. Yep. It's just another person's opinion. Yeah. Um, well, look, I, I think we probably uh, meandered through some pretty, <laughs> pretty heady topics and I'm sure we can go on forever but this has been incredibly interesting for me and I'm sure it'll be incredibly interesting for real estate owners and just anyone focused on public health so thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me likewise Brendan this has been fun thanks for the easy questions <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of fly on the wall all of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel to learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.